Hey everyone, this is Chad Harms, the pastor of Creekside Bible Church. Thanks for taking some time to listen to my latest sermon, a sermon about God's relationship to Israel and what we can learn from it. It will play in just a minute, but before it does, I want to invite you to subscribe to our YouTube channel. The fact that you're listening to this tells me that you are probably either interested in our church or desire content that helps you grow in your relationship with God. And if these things are true for you, either one of them, subscribing to our YouTube channel is worth your time. We post content that doesn't really work in audio form, so you won't hear it here. And recently I've been doing these videos I call the Bible Breakdown, where I use my iPad to like write on a Bible passage that I preached on the previous Sunday, and I just kind of explain some of the things that I found interesting from it. The one connected to this sermon will go out in a couple of days. Also, one of our pastors has recently done a series called Apologetics for the 21st Century. It has been super helpful in clarifying really why it is logical to be a Christian and how we can show others that in a way that is actually valuable to them. The Bible Breakdown and this course are both available on YouTube, so again, I invite you to subscribe. You can do that by going to youtube.com slash creekside2 or by searching for us on YouTube, Creekside Bible Church. One more time, it's youtube.com slash creekside2. I hope you'll do it. Again, thank you for taking some time to listen to my latest sermon. I hope that it will help you to learn and live more fully for the glory of God. Good morning again, everybody. Uh, I, I want to continue this morning the series called Descendants that we're doing, and it's a, a series on Romans 9 through 11. And if you haven't been with us, we're studying through the book of Romans, but we're breaking that down and, and looking at different sections as their own series. And Romans chapters 9 through 11, really, Paul, the author of Romans, as he's inspired by the Holy Spirit, he starts this long section. He, he does, he has a long section. He doesn't just start it. He finishes this long section too on, on Israel and its relationship to the church and to Christianity and all these things. And and in that, he shows us some incredible things about the mercy of God and, and how that mercy is bestowed upon people in general. But uh, before we dive right into Romans chapter 9 and into chapter 10 today, uh, I, I played college baseball and uh, there was this one time, my coach, we didn't, you know, we're baseball players, so there wasn't like a ton of, you know, exercise, like go lift weights if you want to. That was kind of the attitude, and I think that's changed through the years, but when I was in college, it's kind of like an afterthought, you know. Uh, baseball players didn't look like monsters like some of them do today. Um, and, and this one time, I don't know if my coach was in a bad mood, I don't know what his deal was, but Coach Gale, uh, he decided that we were going to run this hill on our campus. I went to Corbin University down in Salem. If you've ever been on the campus, then, then you might know that basically the campus just is like straight up. I used to call it Mount Baptist. Um, that was my own term for it. And if you tried to take a cell phone call while you were walking up it, person thought you were having a heart attack and dying because it was so steep. And, and this one day, this one practice, my coach is like, you're running down to the stoplight, which has got to be like a mile and a half. Then you're going to run back up this hill, and then you're going to do it again. You're going to run down the hill, mile and a half, and then back up this hill. So you're talking like a six-mile run probably total, and a big part of this is just like this, like you're crawling because it's so tall. That's what it felt like. 
And there was not a single person on my team who was in shape to do this. All the soccer girls ran this hill all the time, but, but none of us were at all in shape to do this. And he's on the hill the first time we're coming back and he is yelling at us to get up the hill and don't stop running and you're not going to walk up this, this thing. I don't know. He must have been bad mood. This makes him sound like a jerk. He wasn't like a football guy, but he's just like, you got to do it, you know. And, and we get back the second time and his attitude is a little different, but he still wants us to run. And there's like nobody on my team that can run the hill anymore. Like we are incapable of running the hill. And, and I tell this story because you know when something's hard, that's okay, right? When something's hard and somebody's making you do it, it's fine. But when something's impossible for you and somebody is yelling at you or forcing you to do it, but you are incapable of doing it, there is hardly anything more frustrating in the entire world. You maybe have done this to your kids if you're parents, like when you're, you're telling your kid to do something and, and your kid is like not responding and they're not doing whatever it is. Like I, this is how it happens in our house. I'll be like, you guys get into the bathroom and brush your teeth right now. And, and, and they're like not doing it. And I'm like, I, last time, see, I'm pretty good. I jump right into the emotion because I can feel it. Last time I'm saying it and you're losing everything. You'll no longer have beds, you know, like this is the end. Get in there and brush your teeth right now. And they're like, dad, you locked the bathroom door. And, and it's like, how frustrating is a kid to like not be able to do something that somebody's yelling at you to do? And, and here's, here's kind of the reality. I think all of us understand that there is a right and a wrong in the world. And all of us feel like we should do the right thing. Now, I know that there's non-Christians, maybe some of you, that, that kind of try to reject this, you know, mentally in a philosophical way. They, people try to reject the right and wrong. We'll actually talk about that in a second. But somewhere deep inside of us, there is, there is this feeling, this, I think, knowledge that's inherent to all of us that, that there is right and there is wrong and that we should do right. And yet, we all know this. We just struggle to do it. In fact, I don't think that we struggle. It's more like trying to run up the hill when you're not in shape to run up the hill. We find it absolutely impossible to do the right thing all the time. And one of the things that if you're a God-believing person that you might think about this, and this would be right, is that this then creates some level of separation between us and God. And how, how difficult, how impossible, how frustrating to think, I want the right relationship with God, but I know that it requires me to do the right things, and I know how impossible it is for me to do the right things. I can't, you know, even, you know, New Year's Eve or whatever comes, and you're like, I'm going to do all the right things, and I'm going to live the perfect year, and you're like two minutes in, and, and you're not doing the right things anymore. How frustrating is the idea that we cannot earn, earn the relationship with God that, that I think you know, all of us, whether we recognize it or, want, or not, want. And here, here's what Paul's gonna say in this passage. I think this is so good because, man, it, it is, it is a, it's a concept that doesn't feel, feel right to us, but it, but it is right. And here, here's what Paul's gonna say. Salvation comes by grace through faith, not by effort through rules not by effort through rules. And here's how it starts in Romans 9, 30 through 32. This is, this is such a great question. And this is what I love about Romans 9, although it's like one of the most difficult 
chapters in all of scripture to preach and to think about. What I love about it is that Paul asks all these questions and then does his best to answer them by the power of the Holy Spirit, so it's really good. He answers them, and, and they're questions that all of us wrestle with, maybe out loud, but, but all of us wrestle with them, I think, internally. And, and, and then Paul, you know, he gives us the answers, and, and, and it's so good. Listen to Romans 9, 30 through 32. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles who do not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. But the people of Israel who pursued the law as the way of righteousness have not attained their goal. Why not? Why not? A couple of weeks ago, we looked at this question where Paul asked, is God fair? Is God just? If not all of Israel enters into a relationship with him. And the context here is that Paul is responding to a couple of things. One, that he's anti-Israel, which is strange because he was an Israelite, a Jewish man. And he's responding to that because people think that he's anti-Israel in his ministry. And he's saying, I'm not anti-Israel. We'll touch on that in a second. But he's also responding to just this idea like, like, well, what's the place of the Israelites? God made all these promises in the Old Testament. And now if, if the majority of them have not come to faith, then where then what is their place? Like what's going on here with this, this relationship between Israel and the church? And, and here he asks this incredibly logical question. If it was the Israelites who were trying to have a right relationship with God and the Gentiles weren't trying to have a right relationship with God, isn't it weird or unfair seeming, seemingly that, that the group that wasn't trying got in and the other group didn't, the group that was making all the effort? I mean, the Israelites had the law of God. They had the sacrifices prescribed by God. They had the divine description of worship. The Israelites were trying, you know, a lot of them to live a righteous life. Righteousness, by the way, two meanings. One is the, the more Jewish meaning, and that means just a right relationship. It can be applied to a lot of relationships. And then righteousness, really, in Paul's thought, is to be innocent, like in a legal sense. And I think here, those two things kind of slam together. The Jewish people were working really hard to have a right relationship with God, and, and people outside of Israel weren't. And so how is it that the people outside of Israel are the ones now who have accepted the Messiah and become Christians and have all of these great promises from God? I think that, that the clearest example of that is the Pharisees. And Paul himself was a Pharisee. It was this religious sect, very strict. They had uh, tons of laws, 613 commandments that they tried to follow. And basically they would build commandments on commandments in order that that they wouldn't break the original commandment. So, so God says, don't work on the Sabbath. This is probably the most famous. And so then they're like, well, we better define work. And so then they create a law, like you can't take this many steps on the Sabbath. If you go, you know, one too many steps, then you've broken God's command. So they just keep building on the command. This is an incredible effort to do the things that God wants you to do, right? I mean, these people were the people who were responsible for Israel looking forward to the Messiah again. Paul himself talks about how, how incredibly hard and he worked and how passionate he was about striving to live for God when he himself was a Pharisee in other places. And how is it that these Pharisees now are not the ones who have entered into a right relationship with God through Jesus while the Gentiles have? And by the way, here's the great tension. In, in the book of Romans already, Paul's described people outside of Israel and not so glowing of colors. Listen to Romans 1, 29 through 31. 
They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossip, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. I think it's so funny that disobeying parents is in there. Um, but like, I mean, this description, right? Like, this is, this is in, in, like really bad. And This is really bad. And, and so, look, just think about the tension because we all wrestle with this. You haven't maybe seen it yet and you don't know where I'm going, but we all wrestle with this. You have the Pharisees doing absolutely everything beyond their own power, trying to live the right way, trying to do what they know is morally right, trying to earn a relationship with God. And then you have this other group who just doesn't care about God at all. Totally rejected God. They're inventing new ways of doing evil here. It's like they're coming up with their own form of evil, worshiping false gods and all of that. And Paul comes along and he writes, a bunch of these people have come into the faith and most of these people haven't. What is going on here? And here's how it connects to us. We, we look at people in their lives and, and we, we kind of make moral judgments, don't we? And we think certain people are better and certain people are worse. And, and a lot of times, and we'll come back to this too, but a lot of times, our assumption is that God likes these people who are working hard to have a relationship with him better than God likes these people over here. And we wrestle with the idea of fairness, right? How is it fair that a guy that you know, has lived a pretty good life his entire life, how is it fair that a guy that works really hard would, would not be saved by God, would not enter, enter into a relationship with God when another person over here who's totally rejected God, hasn't lived for God most of his life, you know, gets on his deathbed and, and decides to commit himself to the Lord, as we'll see, you know, Paul describes in a second, places his faith in Jesus and he gets in. And, and Paul, this is what Paul's dealing with here. How is it, how is it that these hardworking, God-striving people are not getting in, and these people who have just rejected God are getting in. And, and here's the answer. He, he specifically addresses Israel. He says this in verses 32 and 33. Because they, Israel, pursued it, not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. And the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. Verse 32 is of the absolute uttermost importance. Your efforts towards a right relationship with God, towards being innocent in a spiritual sense, don't matter. What matters is whether or not you place your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior. That's what Paul says. And, and the reality, and we've seen this throughout, right? Because if you were to go back, the reality is that Paul says this because there is no person who can run the hill to God. There is no person who can complete the task of living a good enough life to enter into a relationship with God. This thing that feels impossible for you to do the right thing all the time actually is impossible for you. 
And so the only way, whether you get a little bit up the hill or a lot way up the hill, the only way to complete the journey to God is by placing your faith in Jesus. There's this family, I'm going to call them the Smith family. It's not their names, but a buddy of mine, a Christian friend, he always talked about this family and he would refer to people that weren't this family by their name. We'll call them the Smith family. The Smith family, and for him, the Smith family represented the family that was pretty good. They, they lived well, they coached sports, everybody liked them in the community, they had good jobs, they had things put together. And, and we kind of go through life, and this is to Christians, we, we, we just look at these people and we almost forget that they need Jesus as much as we need Jesus. They need Jesus as much as the drug addict that's homeless and you know, not lived well at all. That's what Paul says in Romans 3, 22 through 24. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile for all have sinned and fall short, can't make it up the hill, fall short of the glory of God and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. There is no difference between those who try really hard and who don't try. There is no difference between those who have been addicted forever and those who have lived a clean life. There is no difference between those who, who kind of sin a little and you know those who just completely sin all the time. There is no difference between any groups of people. The only thing that really matters is whether or not people choose to place their faith in Jesus for the salvation of sin or not. There is no difference. The misnomer in our heads is that running part way up the hill is, you know, good enough. That, that if we get a little further than the next guy up the hill towards God, if we can move a little bit towards the glory of God, even though we would never describe it that way, then that gets us, that earns us a relationship with God. But that's, that's not the truth of the Bible. The truth of the Bible is that none of us even make a dent running up the hill. And we have to place our faith in Jesus. Now listen. Listen to what he says next because it's so important. If you're a Christian, you're like, I already believe this. What's in it for me? Uh, Romans 10.1. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. They may be saved. All right, I just, we just got to pause here. And just think about what Paul has said here. He's already said it in Romans 9, 1 through 4. He said, I, I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Paul says, I wish that I could be damned so that more people, uh, more Israelites might be saved. Now, I think we have a, here's, here's our tendency. I think we have a tendency to look at both groups. We have a tendency to look at those who never try and those who, you know, try to earn their way into heaven through great works or whatever. And we have a tendency to, to just judge them and look at them and think, well, you're wrong. Too bad you're so stupid. Maybe you would have placed your faith in Jesus. And Paul comes along with a completely, completely different attitude. He comes along and he says, my desire and my prayer is that my people might be Saved, that they might enter into a relationship with Jesus. Here's, I mean, I hope as you think, look, some of you, 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 most of you are Christians, you, you know the story of Jesus, you've entered into faith. 
And then the question becomes like, what are you going to do with that? The fact that you know that nobody can run up the hill, nobody can earn their way into a relationship with God. You realized at some point that you needed to place your faith in Jesus and you did that. What are you going to do with that information? What Paul does is he becomes desperate for, for more people to understand that same truth. Paul becomes desperate to see other people embrace the truth that he has come to know. Now what's interesting is he spends you know, the majority of his career, the majority of his ministry, ministering to Gentiles, people who are, you know, far from God, as we might say, people who have rejected God completely. They're not even thinking about God. But even though that's what God calls him to, his heart, his desire, the desire inside of him is to see the people he loves embrace Jesus as their Savior, and he prays for it. I... I want this desire for our church. I've thought a lot um, this last year about just ministry in church. And you've heard me talk about some of that if you've been around and you know what we should be doing different and all those things. And uh, <laughs> pastoring is, is way too hard uh, if, it doesn't, if it doesn't really matter. <laughs> You know, and one of the things that I am so convinced of now is that part of the reason we just needed to get back to Wilsonville is because we need to be missionaries in the cities in which we live. We don't think of ourselves that way. We think of missionaries as, you know, people that go to China or whatever. But, but if you love somebody, then a natural extension of that, if you have faith in Jesus, is to, is to long for them to be saved too. And, and as God allows us to come back into this building, into a building in Wilsonville, to gather in Wilsonville, I think part of the reason is because he still wants us to be on this mission here, to see the people that we love in our city, in our surrounding cities, the cities in which you live. He, he, it's to be on mission to help these people understand that they cannot climb the hill to God. They'll never finish that run. They must place their faith in Jesus. And here's what people do in, in 2 through 4. For I can testify, Paul says, about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own. They did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the culmination of the law, so there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Paul does not question the Israelites' zeal, and we shouldn't question you know, people's zeal when it comes to matters of faith. Lots of people are zealous, they're passionate about the religion that they follow, or, or you know, even just working their way into a relationship with God. Uh, Paul doesn't deny that, but that doesn't get you salvation. Being passionate about your religion doesn't make you saved. It doesn't get you a relationship with God. What matters is faith, as Paul has already said. And he says that people invent, uh, this is so interesting, they establish their own righteousness. Here's what people do. Here's what we can do. We can be really guilty of this sometimes. We realize that we cannot run the hill. We realize that we can't earn our relationship with God. And we have to do something with that, right? Like we have to do something with that information. And, and what people often do outside of Christianity is they say, well, I'm gonna find a way to circumvent that idea. Because people can't go, well, I do everything right. Nobody, I mean, you can't say that in, not sound like a jerk or, you know, arrogant and all that, but you just can't, nobody can believe that about themselves. I do everything right. And so people, here, here's what they do. They say, okay, I got to find a way to make me right with God. Even people who, you know, are just kind of like 
you know, I kind of believe in God. They have to find a way to be okay with God. Maybe because of fear of what happens after death. Maybe just to make themselves feel better. They have to find a way, right? And so here, let me just give you some of the things. So some people, and this is really common today, they, they try to pretend, they make philosophical arguments against the idea of sin in general, that there is wrongdoing. I'm sure that people, I don't really feel like anybody believes that. Like, I really don't think that anybody truly believes that. People just try to believe that. That's how I feel about it. Because we all know, like, if somebody punches us in the face, we, like, if, if somebody walked up and punched you in the face, you, you think they did something wrong. I think almost always we think we do something wrong. We raise our children with some sense of right and wrong. We may not agree with that right and wrong is, but we, but we do agree that, that kids should do certain things and shouldn't do other things, right? We all agree. We, we've had people hurt us and we think they did something wrong to us. And so people, that's one way though, right? Like we just pretend, like what's right for me is right for me and what's right for you is right for you and we can't cross over and there's no universal morality. People do that. Here, here's one, God doesn't care about my sin. God just wants me to be happy. And so even though there's a right and a wrong, when I choose the wrong, God doesn't actually care about that. But man, I think that's tough for me because we want God to care about sin, don't we? Like we wanna know there's some level of justice in the world. That's why we ask these questions. We want to know that God doesn't like people that are doesn't like people being mass murderers. We want to know that God wasn't okay with the actions of Hitler, right? We we don't want a God who doesn't care about these things. And in fact, we often cry foul when we think that maybe God isn't paying attention to the injustice in the world. And so I don't I we we try to play that game, but I don't think we even really like that idea. And then people do this, and this is the one really for the Jewish people. Your, your righteousness is simply, you know, about having the good of your life outweigh the bad. That's a really common idea. And we think that, you know, as long as I, like I said, run partway up the hill, we'll be good to go. But Paul comes back to this idea. Righteousness is for everyone who believes. What matters is not how much effort you put in. What matters is not, you know, whether you try to circumvent the rules. What matters is whether or not you believe. Moses writes this about the righteousness that is by the law, it says in Romans 10, 5 through 8. The person who does these things will live by them, but the righteousness that is by faith says, do not say in your heart who will send into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the deep, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, it is in your mouth, and it is in your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. I preached about this weird section of Romans not that long ago, and I don't want to dive deeply into it uh, again because I've already done it. Uh, so I just want to give you the three main points, and if you don't believe me, you can go back and listen to that other sermon. But here, here it is. Perfectly fulfilling the law is the only way that leads to life, eternal life and salvation. Perfectly fulfilling it. However, you can't fulfill the law perfectly. We all know that. That's like the most agreed upon thing maybe uh, in all the Bibles, that we can't perfectly fulfill God's law in any way. Salvation, therefore, only can come through grace, God offering us a gift that we did not earn. And here's the, the last part in that section that maybe isn't as clear. The avenue of grace, the gospel, is easily accessible to you. It came through Jesus. And so here's, here's what's happened. We don't have to wonder, how can I be made right with God anymore? Because Jesus came to earth. He, he, he showed us the exact way and the way was through him. The gospel is, whether you want to embrace it or not, whether you want to read about it or not, is up to you. But the gospel is accessible and understandable for everybody who wants 
to look at it. That's the truth. It wasn't always that way. The Jews were, you know, they wondered for hundreds and thousands of years, what's this going to look like when God offers us salvation? And many people didn't really like uh, how it came, but it came that way nonetheless. And he says, this is the message concerning faith. Now, he gets to the big point, and this is where I want to Spend our last, my last few minutes this morning. In Romans 10, 9, 9 through 10, he says this very important things, thing, one of the most famous things in the book of Romans. He says, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. If you aren't saved by working hard, this would be the question, right? If you didn't know anything about the Bible and you were like, if I'm not saved by making great effort to enter into a relationship with God, to do what he wants, all those things, if I'm not saved by that, then how am I saved? And Paul says this very important thing. Salvation doesn't come through working hard. It comes because of how you view Jesus. Salvation isn't about your effort. It's about your understanding and belief about who Jesus is. Now, one thing, just, you know, parenthetical. Uh, I think people have tried to make what's written here in Romans 10, 9 through 10, kind of like like a description of what conversion looks like, that first moment, like you got to believe and then you say this certain thing. And that's really not Paul's point. And I think what Paul's point mainly is here is to show us the two beliefs that really demonstrate, that show that we are Christians. These are two beliefs that separate a non-Christian from a Christian. Now, Paul said there's no Jew and Gentile. He shows in his writings that, again, it's not about how hard you work or don't work. It's about faith, right? And now he shows us kind of the two components that are gonna determine whether a person has faith or doesn't have faith. Before we get there, let me just, this is really important. Because I've kind of flirted around this and, and I've danced around it. I've, I've moved around it. But, but Paul is presenting all this within the context of, of the gospel as he tells it. That's what Romans is. It's Paul sharing the gospel in the words that the Holy Spirit has given him. It's different than reading the books that we call the gospels. It's more nuanced. It's more theological. It's, it's you know, all of these things. But Paul is, is presenting what we're seeing here in the context of, of the story that we call the gospel. And that is that we were all sinners. I've talked about that. But instead of God saying, you didn't make it, instead of God being the coach yelling, get up the hill, work a little harder. I know you can't, but just try harder. And then condemning us, cutting us from the team and saying, see y'all later. Instead of that, God came from heaven to earth in the person of Jesus. Jesus never sinned. He never did anything wrong. And at the end of that sinless life, Jesus died on a cross. It was a terrible physical experience for him, but, but even more, it was a horrible spiritual experience because on that cross, he paid for the punishment of our sins. When he hung there, it was the, as though our sins were being nailed to the cross in his body. So he hung on that cross, he suffered all of hell on our behalf for all of us who would believe, and then he came back from the grave a couple of days later. And that's the story that Paul has in mind when he says, if you will declare with your mouth, Jesus the Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, here's the route. We all believe we're sinners. Most people, they might not call it sin, but most people believe I've done wrong things. Most people believe that Jesus was awesome. I think most people kind of agree. I think everybody agrees that Jesus died, right? But there's these two things here that, that 
really draws a line in the stand. I mean, it's, it, Paul describes it as a stone. And I, the whole week when I was thinking about this stone, I was picturing a coffee table. I hate coffee tables. And, and either a coffee table serves a good purpose in your life, you sit your coffee there, or it serves a really bad one. You slam your shin into it and you yell things that you wish you wouldn't have yelled. And you're thankful that we get into heaven by faith, you know? Like that's those, and that's, that's, the, that's kind of what Paul's saying when he's saying the stumbling stone. Either he's the stone you build your life on or he's the stone you stub your toe on and it's gonna mess you up. And, and here's, here's, the two, here's the two things. Jesus is Lord. Now, that's, that's different. For, you know, like that's not just Jesus was a nice man, a good teacher, that he, you know, uh, loved people, that he did good miracles even. Jesus is Lord. That's a statement of faith. When you say Jesus is Lord, you are not just saying Jesus was a great man. You are not just saying that Jesus is better than other people. You are saying that Jesus is King of Kings, that he is Almighty God who walked among us, that he now sits in heaven on the throne, reigning over all that exists. You are saying that Jesus is in control of all, and even more than that, you are saying that you are allowing for Jesus to be in control of your life. You have submitted yourself to Jesus. It's really easy to say, Jesus was a great teacher. Man, I love that guy. He was so nice to people. But to say, I believe that Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords, and I submit my life to him, even doing the things that he wants me to do when I don't like them or that they you know, make my life worse or whatever, that is different than saying, yeah, Jesus was a great man. And so Paul says, look, you gotta believe, you gotta have faith. That's the determining factor. It's not how hard you worked, how far you got up the hill. What matters is your faith. And here's one of the things that's gonna determine if you're a person of faith or not. Is Jesus to you a nice man? Or is Jesus Lord of all? Have you submitted your life to Jesus? And then the other one is he says that Jesus came back from the dead. We, we do agree that Jesus died. Now, Christians, there's two things that are different about that. One is that we believe he died for our sins, right? But the other really key belief that's going to to determine if you're a person of faith who is saved or not, a person who is a Christian or not, a real Christian or not, is whether or not you believe Jesus got out of the grave. He got out of the grave. Now, listen, because I think there's this thing that happens. People go, yeah, sure, I, I like Easter. It's good. I like the outfits. I like Cadbury eggs, you know, like I really like Cadbury eggs. But I, I like all that. I like, I like that idea. But when we really, really, really believe that Jesus came back from the dead, that changes our whole paradigm on all of human history. If there was a man who came to earth, lived the life that we read about in the Bible, died, and everybody, you know, was like, he's dead, right? They know where they buried him, they put guards outside of the tombs. And that man, by the power of God, came back to life. That's pretty crazy, right? And it's pretty awesome if you believe it. And the reality is that's going to separate, you know, me as a Christian from the person down the road who will go, Jesus is a great guy, but I'm going to say Jesus is Lord, and I believe that Jesus both died for my sins and came back to life so that I might live forever and ever in the glorious perfection of heaven. 
And so I would ask you to ask yourself, not whether or not you've lived a good life, not whether or not you know, you're better than other people, not whether or not you want to get rid of the idea of sin altogether, but, but do you believe that Jesus is Lord? And if you do, have you submitted yourself to him saying, I will be obedient to you. I will live my life for you. And you're going to mess up because you can't run up the hill, but you're going to do your best to live for him. And do you believe that Jesus died for your sins and came back to life? If you don't, I would, oh man, the gospel is accessible to you now. And I would ask that you would dive deeply into looking at it, to researching it, to thinking about it. Because if these things are true, then it means that you can enter into a relationship with the creator of the universe and that you can live forevermore in, in, a, in a perfection, in perfection. And maybe God will tug on your heart this morning. This is my hope when I preach. Maybe he'll tug on your heart and say, hey, this is real. And I would say, don't, don't just let that moment go. Don't, don't let it go. Just, you know, make a decision to follow him to place your faith in him. But for those of us who are Christians, we believe this, right? And if we, if we believe this, man, shouldn't we want more people to know? And so I come back to the idea that our heart's desire and the prayer of our lives should be to see the people we love embrace this same truth.